Would you turn with me in the Bibles to the book of Hebrews? We're going to be in chapter 11. If you're not used to using a Bible, the page number that will be on is page 1007 in these black Bibles around you. In chapter 11, 11 is the the large number, and then we're starting a new chapter and a, a bit of a new series of teachings in the book of Hebrews on faith. And so if you've not been with us, you, you want to know the bit of the context of how we get to chapter 11. There's a couple different points of reference. One is the immediate scripture passages that precede it. So for example, if you look at chapter 10, you'll see that this idea of faith was just introduced And then now it's going to be defined, explained, and given examples of in chapter 11. So in chapter 10, you see, Therefore we do not throw away our confidence. This is verse 35. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Then there's a a quotation from two Old Testament texts that are put together, one from Isaiah and one from Habakkuk. And it says, Yet a little while, and the coming one will Come and will not delay, but my righteous one, and then here's this first instance of seeing the word, they shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we, and this is now the pastor, kind of pastor of the Hebrews church, says, we're not those kind of people. We do not shrink back and are destroyed. We are those who have faith and preserve their souls. So if you remember, He just gave an extremely stern warning in verse 26 through verse 31. And you see at the end of verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Do not throw away Jesus Christ. Do not deliberately shake your fist in his face and say your blood is not sufficient. Those sort of actions could cause to be very costly. But as a good pastor does, after giving severe warnings, he gives such wonderful encouragement. Not just the verses that follow that I just read to you about, but no, no, that's not us. Look at your good works that he says in verse 32. Recall the former days when you were enlightened and the way they persevered through affliction and reproach and having compassion on people. No, no, I see such better things from you all. And so this isn't describing us, but just be warned. If this were to be us, it would be a fearful, awful thing. So that's where we've been. And then now in chapter 11, something very different happens. I mean, just in terms of the whole letter, the whole sermon, because we understand this actually is probably a a written-down sermon that was from the early first century. In this sermon, you've seen a lot of argumentation. So, like, here's doctrinal points, and you've seen examples and reasons from the Old Testament for why you should believe in the doctrine of who Jesus is as our priest. Some of it has been technical. Some of it has been tough intellectually to kind of follow his train of thought. But here in chapter 11, it's like the whole structure has changed, like literally speaking, uh, literarily speaking. He's speaking poetically. You see assonance. You see alliteration. You see repetition. You're going to see the word faith, pistos in the Greek, It's going to happen over 20 times in this next chapter, by faith, by faith, by faith. And there's a sense like, what's going on here, you know? 
Why the sudden change? And one common explanation is that he's doing what had been known amongst Jewish authors to list a bunch of heroes of the faith. This is not an uncommon thing. So if you think, oh, this is a unique chapter in the history of ancient writing, it's really not. In fact, some people who are Catholic, they have different books in their Bible, the Apocrypha. There's different people that look through church history and they see, you know, the book Sirach has this list of heroes. It says, now we're going to list all these heroes, and it lists all these Old Testament heroes. And then it crescendos to this great high priest. And so I just want you to realize that it seems like knowing the context of what he's writing in, and the time and the day, and the familiarity that many of these Jewish believers would have known these books, he's now taking something that's familiar, but he is applying Jesus faithfully to it. So there's a bit of a a poem, you could say, in this chapter. It's very beautifully written. And so I want us to spend a little bit of time on this and think through a a variety of things. But this week, I'd, I'd like us to read the whole chapter. I'd like us to see this poetic beauty. And then I want to make three observations about faith as we kind of introduce ourselves to this chapter 11. So follow along with me. As I read chapter 11, the longest chapter in Hebrews, so be helpful if you have your Bibles open and read along with me. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them And greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God had been, was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each one of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the danger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of the weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I don't know if when you hear that read, if you could just imagine some first century preacher getting all worked up by faith, by faith, and, and what more should I say? And then he just goes off on a long list of tangent, all these different examples of people of whom we are not worthy. So like I said, there's a lot that we will get to in the coming weeks. I think we should make three basic observations about this idea of faith. We'll look primarily at these first three verses as we see what faith is and what faith is not. So, three myths about faith. If you're taking notes or want to follow along on the outline, I'm going to give you three myths about faith. Here they are. First, faith 
is not intellectual. That's a myth. Faith is not intellectual. Second myth about faith. Faith is only intellectual. Second myth, faith is only intellectual. And third and finally, faith is only for the religious. Third and final myth, faith is only for the religious. First, faith is not intellectual. Look closely at verse 3. By faith, we understand. Understanding, reason, thinking goes into faith. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It's verses like these and ideas like these that cause many people to look at Christians and people of faith and say, that's it's not intellectual. How can you believe that God spoke and the world came to be? Well, it's not because of blind faith. It's not because we're stupid idiots. It's not because we're anti-intellectuals. By faith, we understand and we reason and we have thought through these things. I think that there's a whole list of things that people say about Christians in particular, but religious people in general, and their faith about God and the universe, and especially a God who would create the universe. Faith is just a blind leap into the dark. Faith is wishful thinking. Faith is the gap between what we know and what we just can't understand. You go so far with reason, and then, ah, mystery. That mystery is just made up for with faith. It's the bridge that gets us to those places. They'll say that faith does not involve reason, logic, or science. It, in fact, contradicts all of those things. And faith is just believing something that you really wish and hope to be true. And it's really not. Friends, does that sound like you this morning? And does that even sound like these people in Hebrews chapter 11? You know, it just doesn't make sense of the way he even talks about faith to consider it that way. Remember the way he talked about Sarah in verse, was it 9 and 10 and 11? They talked about the way that Abraham and Sarah, how they considered the things that God had said. By faith, Sarah herself, verse 11 says, received power to conceive and when she was past the age. Since, why, why did she have sexual relations why would she even try? She's way past the age of childbearing. What's going on here, Sarah? Because she considered. She thought thoroughly, repeatedly about the things that were said to her, and she considered the faithfulness of the one who made the promise. This wasn't a blind leap. Well, I just hope I'll get children at the age of 99, even though I'm almost dead and I haven't had menstrual cycle for forever gone through menopause. I mean, you just name it. You think, Sarah, what are you thinking? She was thinking. She was thinking about faithfulness. She was thinking about the God who made the promise, and she used her reason and her thinking. This God is telling something true. And so based on that truth, I will act in obedience. The same thing was said of Abraham. He considered, and he thought in verse 19, that God was able to raise him from the dead. 
What a crazy idea that Isaac would be offered the only son that he has, the son to whom the offspring that he promised. How is this going to work? This just doesn't make any sense. But no, he considered that God is a God who would even be able to raise him from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did. Do you see what's happening here? These people and their actions are not just blindly leaping out without thought or reason. Think about it this way. The passage that was read to you earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, did you hear what it said? We walk by faith, not by reason. That's not what it says. Because that's not what the opposite of faith. It's not faith is non-reason and reason is on the opposite side. We walk by faith. The opposite of faith is sight. Have you noticed even as we read through these passages of Scripture, not only in 2 Corinthians but here in Hebrews, the comparison and the contrast between faith and sight Verse 1 of chapter 11, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Verse 3, by faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made out of things that were visible, was not made out of things that are visible. So you have seen versus what's not seen and the things that we can't see. This, This is the contrast between faith. Walking by faith not by sight. This week, I think it was this week, was it this week or last week that the big research article came out about how beef and bacon cause cancer? You guys know what I'm talking about? This was quite alarming for me. I am a bacon lover. So if bacon causes cancer, I have a huge problem here. So let's just imagine for a moment, I don't believe any of the research is true. I haven't really read much on it, but let's just imagine that the research is true. Let's imagine all of us go home today as bacon lovers that some of us are and say, that's a startling thought. Bacon could cause cancer. I eat a lot of bacon. So I need to find out, does bacon cause cancer and am I going to die from eating bacon? So you do the research. And over the course of weeks, months, you use your reason, you use your intellect, and the more you read and the more you study and the more your own personal experience confirms, you realize that it's in fact true. So there's your reason, there's your thought, your understanding. What happens when a friend of yours who hasn't done the research and hasn't read that bacon causes cancer and isn't convinced invites you over to a lovely feast of bacon something wrapped whatever and big strips and plates and smells of bacon and you being the bacon lover you are smell the smell of bacon. In that moment, what is going on here? Is it your reason that's failing you? Or is it your sight and the smell of bacon right in front of you? Oh man, I don't care what I think in terms of my reason. What I want, what I need now is that bacon. Do you see what's happening here? Maybe a bit silly of an illustration, but I think it holds true. This is what's going on here in our lives is that We use our reason and our understanding to find out what's true, and then it's the situations, the circumstances, the things that we see, they're just, they're not making sense with what we know to be true. And so therefore we falter, we fall, we sin. It's not that our reason is failing us, it's that our sight is failing us. 
And it's not matching with our, our reason in that moment. So faith is not the opposite of reason. Faith is not anti-intellectualism. In fact, one of my favorite memories of living in Washington, D.C., many of you know, before moving here to Chicago and helped start Embassy Church, I was interning at a church in Washington, D.C., and the pastor of that church was never planning to be a pastor in his life. In fact, he did four or five different graduate degrees, got a Ph.D. from Cambridge, and was planning to be a scholar. So he spent his whole life going to Duke and all kinds of top-notch schools, and this guy was just a brain, right? A huge, big brain. But he's also a really sweet pastor, really loved people, could disciple and preach the word well. This is just interesting combination. Most of the time, I saw him as Pastor Mark, but every once in a while, I got to see Scholar Mark. And one instance was when I was doing campus ministry, so one of my jobs while I was going through seminary was uh, working on a university, George Washington and Georgetown University, to help share the gospel with students. So one of the events that we held that year was at Georgetown University, and hopefully we're all familiar. Georgetown is eh, it's a pretty good school, right? It, it's hard to get into. There's not a bunch of dummy students that are there. So they wanted to have some sort of event that would catch the interest of the students, and the event title was, Is Becoming a Christian Committing Intellectual Suicide? That was the topic, and the speaker was scholar Mark Dever. And I remember prepping for this event and then attending it, seeing all the students flock in, and it's a Catholic school, so there's, you know, religion and then intellectuals and seculars, it's a good mixture of people that were there, right? And I remember what he said, a lot of different things, it was about an hour-long lecture, but this one moment where he said, now, this is a broad sweeping statement that becoming a Christian would be anti-intellectual, isn't it? That's, that's kind of broad. All Christians, they have no intellectualism. But are there any exceptions to that broad sweeping statement? For example, if you look at ethics, what sense does it make that John Newton or William Wilberforce were anti-intellectuals when they were some of the leading abolitionists, but also devout Christians? Or what sense do you make of Martin Luther King Jr. when you think of the realm of ethics and intellectualism? Or when we turn to the arts, how about the painter Michelangelo or the poet John Milton, the musician Johann Sebastian Bach, or the writer, lecturer, and literary critic at Oxford, C.S. Lewis? Are we to assume that all of these people committed intellectual suicide because they became a Christian? Or if you take political theory, Sir Thomas More and Sir Francis Bacon, Edmund Burke, who all called themselves Christians, Alexander Hamilton, who designed parts of the United States finance system, all of these men had their political theory affected by their faith. Abraham Kuyper was the prime minister in the Netherlands in the early 1900s, but he was also one of the best theologians of his day. In recent years, on both sides of the U.S. political divide, in both theoretical and practical politics, you can find professing and confessing Christians. Broadly speaking, Robert George from Princeton, Jimmy Carter, Chuck Colson, Barack Obama, most of the justices in the Supreme Court at least call themselves Christians and have a faith in God. Have all of these people also committed intellectual suicide? Well, okay, but what does it mean when you look at them? And say some of these people are the smartest, brightest people in the world right now and throughout history. 
Historically, you've seen several philosophers like Thomas Aquinas, Jonathan Edwards, who were Christians. Modern philosophers like Alvin Plantiga at the University of Notre Dame. Keith Yandel was the head of the philosophy department at Wisconsin, but he himself is an evangelical Christian. In science, Peter Berger in Boston is one of the strongest Lutherans that works in science. In economics, Donald Hay at Oxford. In mathematics, Blaise Pascal was a passionate Christian. In biology, E.J. Ambrose, an excellent cellular biologist in London. In physics, Ernest Rutherford was the founder of the greatest physics labs in Cambridge. Or James Clark Maxwell was a pioneer of the electromagnetic research. And Robert Boyle was the one who founded the modern discipline that we now call chemistry. Have you noticed in this long list of people, both historical and contemporary scholars are named, so that in case you think, well, modern advancements in technology and science have somehow made it anti-intellectual to be a Christian. And so, pastor, scholar, Mark Dever concludes, if you simply mean being a Christian is committing intellectual, intellectual suicide, you simply just mean, I disagree with you, Okay, well, that's a little more honest and humble than calling all Christians throughout all history anti-intellectuals. Friends, it just doesn't make sense. Much of the schooling and the reason and the education departments and people that started the schools were all Christians, even the ones that call Christians today anti-intellectuals. In fact, I think it's secular belief that's not consistent with its own reason and logic. They have no consistent standard for beauty or love or morality. They have no accounting for them. But yet they judge us by using ours. You ever think about that? Why does the secular skeptic say that they know and experience love, but they can't tell you how it came from molecules combining together in some random accident? If you know and you experience love and truth and beauty, and morality, and you know some things are right and wrong, what account do you give for those things? So friends, if you're here this morning and you're a skeptic, you have questions or doubts, it's not because of your reason. It's not because of intellectualism. In fact, if you're going to be consistent with your reason, you need to give an account for why you believe the things that you do. That's the first point. Faith as a myth, yeah, it's, it's not intellectual. No, it includes understanding and reason. The second myth we want to look at is that faith is only intellectual. This is kind of the opposite extreme. We go from the secularists that say faith is just a blind leap in the dark. But then you have the people who are so spiritual and mystical or, or, or thinking that faith is only in the head. It's only just a matter of, of knowing and reason. I want to ask you, when you heard me read through chapter 11, and knowing how often it used this term faith and defined faith, when I got to the end, did you think, that was an intellectual chapter? You know, these people are examples of great intellect. No, it was all about their obedience, their actions, their lives. Look at verse 2. For it, by it, their faith, the people of old, these Old Testament heroes... They received their commendation from God for their faith. Not because of their intellectual pursuits of their faith, but because of their life that demonstrates their faith. 
See, there's an interesting thing going on in verse 1 that we need to make sure we understand this morning. There's two words that if you're reading the Bibles in front of you or any contemporary English translation, you'll see faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. But if you were to open up this red Bible that's around you, this is the New King James Version, you're going to read this. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, this isn't just a matter of word preference. Those are actually very different ideas. One of them is the idea of, I have some sort of either mental or subjective feeling of assurance in the hope that I have. And I have this strong conviction because of that assurance. Whereas what the New King James translation has for us is that faith is the substance or the reality of the things hoped for. It is the evidence or the proof of the things not seen. Ah, now we have a little bit of a dilemma. Which way do we go with this? You know, most often when you read the Bible and there's these different translation problems, it really just doesn't make a difference. You know, if I come up here and wow you with some sort of Greek word or whatever, I mean, it's pretty much whatever you read in your English Bibles, more often than not, okay? So don't get too impressed when somebody starts spouting off Greek or whatever. But every once in a while, there are some rare occasions, and this would be one of them, where the Greek actually does matter because it's going to take you a really different direction based on which way you go. And honestly, I'm not going to bore you with the details, but after reading scores of commentaries and thinking much on this, I really think the New King James Version gets it right. That the idea here is more consistent with the theme and the structure of 1 Corinthians 11, but it's also more consistent with the way these Greek words were used throughout the first century. So we're going to go with the New King James on this one, and we're going to see that the idea here is that faith is the reality and the substance of what we hope for. It's a living expression of somebody who really believes in the reality of their future hope and the present reality of a God that they're trusting in. I think this definition was the most helpful based on those distinctions between the words. Faith is living in accord with the reality of your hope. Faith is living in accord with the reality of the things that you hope. Or say it another way, faith is living as if the things you hoped for are real. They're real. The new heavens and the new earth, that's not a fantasy land. That's real, friends. There's substance and reality for us to reason and think that Jesus Christ's historical resurrection from the dead gives us reason and understanding to believe that's the first of many future resurrections from the dead. So therefore, we have a promise from the God who raised Jesus from the dead that there will be a future resurrection from the dead. Now think for a second. All of Hebrews is hammering this theme again and again. There is a hope. There is a hope in a future world to come. Think back in chapter 2, verse 5. Okay, now of this hope in the world to come that we're talking about. Think in chapter 1 when he's talking about the the Old Testament scripture in the psalm and this idea of all the heavens and the earth and all these different instances in chapter 3 and 4 in Hebrews when he's talking about the Sabbath rest to come and how we put our hope in this future rest. Throughout this whole book, he's been talking about this future hope. And friends, he's trying to tell you faith 
is really living out what it looks like to have that future. What does your life look like if there really is a new heavens and a new earth? That's faith. Your life is the evidence and the proof. It is the substance of somebody who has been transformed by that hope. They believe it's real, and so they live as if it's real. So use my bacon illustration. If I really believe that bacon will give me cancer, I will not eat bacon. And my faith would be using my reason and understanding to come to that conclusion and then living as if that was true. So when you see me go into that friend's and neighbor's house and I say no to the bacon, that is faith. That is the substance. That is the essence of faith being demonstrated. It's the proof that I really do believe. Now think through all that I just read to you in chapter 11. Yeah, that makes so much more sense. That's exactly what's going on with Noah. Noah was given a warning that there was going to be a flood. So what did he do? He built an ark. He believed in the promise as if it was real. There's a flood coming, so what should I do? I should protect myself with a big ark in the middle of what would have been Kansas, where they're far away from any kind of ocean. It's like, what in the world is this guy doing building an ark in the middle of land? It seems ridiculous, but it wasn't ridiculous because it was based on the reason that the person who gave the command and gave the promise of judgment was a reliable person. So he used his reason, his understanding, and said, this word is true. And so he acted on that truth, and he built the ark. And so on and so forth we go. By using his reason and understanding, and knowing who gave the promise, he lived in that reality. So friends, ask yourself, are you a person of faith? If we looked at your life this week, which reality were you living in? The reality of what is seen what is temporary, the day-to-day, or the future reality, the new heaven and new earth reality, the hope of resurrection reality. I think, think for a second, how would you spend your money different if you knew that you could store up treasures in heaven? Faith would be the reality that you'd start spending differently. You'd stop storing them up here on this earth Stop saving and saving and saving for yourself. Be so incredibly generous knowing that, what does it matter? I'm going to die, and then if even I get this massive wealth at the end of my life, i got to pass it off to some bratty kids. What are they going to do with it? By the way, that's a quotation from the book of Ecclesiastes, and I've been studying that with the uh, college students at Judson, so we were talking about that the other day. So that's Solomon there. He says, it's, it's, a, vain, it's a vain thing to try and amass all this wealth because at the end of your life you don't even get to use it and a lot of times you end up giving it to a bunch of people that don't even deserve it and waste it and spoil it vanity of vanities he says and on and on you could go that's just one example take any area of your life ask yourself are you a person of faith are you living in the reality of the future hope friends this this little key here unlocks very much the secret for the Christian life, the everyday practical Christian life. Are you believing in the goodness and the grace of God? Part of the reason why you're not obeying God right now in whatever area of sin that you're struggling with, you just don't believe in the goodness of his commands. You don't believe in his faithfulness to bless you in spite of that. You don't believe in the future reward for that faithfulness. You want your reward now 
So you take on fleeting pleasures now? I want them now. I don't want to wait. I don't want to have delayed gratification. I want gratification now. I don't want to wait to marriage to have sex. I want to have sex now. Oh, friend, you don't believe he's faithful. You're not living by faith that his word is good and his promises are true. Are you starting to see now how this is so incredibly real and practical for your lives? I encourage you this week, would you spend some time talking with another Christian in this room, discipling relationships, community groups, asking each other, in what areas do you have unbelief? Your faith is lacking. We're not talking intellectual faith. We're talking, is your life living in this reality? Oh, friends, this is the sort of church that we should be. A demonstration to the rest of the world. The evidence, the proof that Jesus is real. They can look and see the church of Jesus Christ. Believing, living. Examples to the world around us. He's real. We wouldn't live this way if it wasn't real. His word is good. His promises are true. So those are our two first myths. Faith is not intellectual. That's a myth. Faith is only intellectual. No, faith is really about our lives, how we live in light of the reality of these truths. Lastly, faith is only for religious people. It's only for the religious. I want us to see in verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is the biblical accounting for how the world came to be. And none of us in this room were there when the world came to be. So read your science textbooks, get into your philosophy, and realize that all of them start with a theoretical premise. And then use their reason to see if their premise has a good explanation for how things came to be. But by starting with a premise, that premise has faith. My point here this morning is that when I call all of you this morning to faith, it's not that you didn't have faith before, it's just who and what is your faith in. That's the difference. So it's not just like, the Bible and Christianity is trying to tell a bunch of secular, non-faith people, hey, have faith because you lack faith. No, no, you have faith. How do you make an accounting for the creation of the world? You have to use faith. Now, you can use your reason and your science and your explanations for that. But is your starting premise any good? I think we've already seen some holes in it this morning, haven't we? If your starting premise is that it's all accidental, if your starting premise is that it's all biological, well then why should you use reason anyway? It's just an evolutionary design. Why use reason to explain anything? We use reason as Christians because we believe in a God who ordered the world reasonably. Our starting premise makes sense for the reasons that we give because we can use reason. It's just on and on you can go. Does your starting premise match with your explanations? for how the world is and works. All of you have them. It's just, is it in the right one? So, the author of Hebrews is going to encourage all of us to have faith in Jesus. These heroes are not the main point of this chapter. In fact, the chapter design is helpful for us to flip through our Bibles, but it can be incredibly unhelpful when we're trying to study God's Word. Look at chapter 12, verse 1 with me. 
I don't think there was supposed to be a chapter break necessarily here. I think he's continuing his thought. And remember what I said at the beginning of the message. The author of Hebrews is more than likely taking a passage of Scripture that they would have been familiar with, like, say, Sirach 44 through 50, and the heroes of the faith. And he's kind of giving his own version of that. And remember, in the book of Sirach, there's all these lists, and it starts with creation, and then it goes to Noah, and then it goes to Enoch, and then it goes to Abraham, and it goes to Isaac and Jacob, and then it goes to Moses. This is exactly what happens here in 1 Corinthians 11. But then, what did I say? It crescendoed. It got to a final climaxing point. And that chapter in the book of Sirach was all about a great high priest dressed in his garb and his splendor and his majesty and making sacrifices before God. Do you friends see the author who has been belaboring the point that we have a great high priest? And it's not the one from the book of Sirach. It's Jesus Christ, the God-man. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, not looking to Abraham, not looking to Sarah, not looking to Noah. Not, no, no, the whole point of chapter 11 is to see that they are just foreshadowing pictures of the one who was to come who would exemplify the greatest faith and be the greatest demonstration of faith. He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God as our high priest. Take that, Sirach. I really think there's a sense in which he's doing that. This is the real hero list. Climaxing not in some high priest in his robe making an animal sacrifice, but climaxing in the final high priest, Jesus Christ. The greatest demonstration of faith, who the joy set before him endured the greatest suffering. So friends, if you're struggling this morning with faith, sometimes it's because you think, I just don't have enough faith. No, 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 no. That's not your problem. It's not about the amount of faith. It's about who your faith is in. The object of your faith. Regularly when I was on campuses, I told you I was doing evangelism at George Washington and Georgetown, I'd often use an illustration that was similar to what Kenny said a few weeks back when he was preaching about ice. I want you to think, you know, winter is coming very soon, friends, unfortunately. And you know the ponds and the lakes that are around us, that as it gets colder and colder, eventually they freeze over. Some people want to play hockey on them or go figure skating or those sort of things. But there's that moment where it's still warm and you're not sure, is the ice thick enough to hold or are we going to fall through and get hypothermia and die? You know, it's very dangerous. See, the ice could be thick for months. It could be the middle of March and February or whatever, and it's been negative 40 and cold and frigid, and the ice is so thick. But your faith in the reality of that thick ice is wavering. You're scared. You haven't been out on there yet. You don't see anybody out there. You're wondering, you're afraid, is it going to hold me? So there you go, you kind of tippy-toe, you maybe crawl, you're, you're kind of feeling your way around. You don't realize it, but even though your faith stinks, like you have bad faith, the ice is strong. See, now, if we were to take this same story and back 
all the way up to middle of November, and you get your first snow, and the ice is just starting to go over the lake. And it is not thick. It is thin ice. But you've got faith. Lots of it. I believe it'll hold me. I've got lots of faith that it will hold me. That's really not based on reason, number one. And number two, it doesn't matter how much faith you believe that it will have. What matters is it's strong enough to hold you. And here I am standing before all of you this morning, and I tell you, the faith of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, the ice of Jesus' death and resurrection, it is thick. So all you need is one little ounce of faith. That's it. You don't need a lot of faith. Just any faith will do. Look to Jesus. It's thick ice, friends. It will hold, and it will hold to the end. Stay looking at Jesus. This is what the author's been saying week in and week out through Hebrews. So I say it again to you this morning. Friends, wherever you're at, look at Jesus. See his suffering and his death for you, his resurrection from the dead, and realize with your reason and your understanding, we have great reason to put our hope in this objective reality. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks this morning. We want to thank you for your word and how beautiful it is. Each page and chapter and verse is different. It's poetic beauty. It's penetrating truth. It's enlightening help to our minds. And it's convicting power to our hearts. We want to thank you this morning for Jesus Christ. We want to thank you that he is the greatest example of our faith the greatest one who lived in light of the great reality that would come, the joy set before him. He could endure anything that he was seeing in his life. Thank you for that substitutionary death on a cross and the hope that it gives us now. Grant us faith, however much, however little, but help us to see it's Jesus alone and put our faith in him. In his name, amen. What we're going to do now is conclude our service by taking the Lord's Supper. This is a a command from Jesus himself that we would remember his death, remember his resurrection, his body, his blood spilled for us by taking a symbol, a symbol of bread and a symbol of a cup. And in this bread, in this cup, what we have before us is a visible, tangible expression of the God who came man and had faith, and believed in the reality that Jesus would be raised from the dead, and so he gave his life for us, so that after he raised him from the dead, he would offer all of us life eternal. Are you here this morning and believe that message? Do you have faith in Jesus? Well, if you do, I would encourage you to partake with us in this bread and this cup, this remembrance, celebration of what Jesus has done for us, If you're still a skeptic or you don't have faith, you're not looking to Jesus, I'd encourage you to do that now. Let the bread, let the cup pass. This meal is for Christians. If you're not a Christian, it's not for you then. But I encourage you to consider who is your faith in and can you give an accounting for it? I hope you'd take Jesus. The song's gonna play by faith. You can sing along, you can meditate on the words that are being sung. And then after that, I'll come up and we'll take the bread and cup together.